Welcome to Masterminds and Maintenance, a podcast for those with new ideas and maintenance. I'm your host, Ryan. I'm the CEO and founder of Upkeep. Each week, I'll be meeting with a guest who's had an idea for how to shake things up in the maintenance and reliability industry. Sometimes their idea failed, sometimes it made their business more successful, and other times their idea revolutionized an entire industry. Today, I'm super excited. We've got Tim Rice here on the show. Tim has spent roughly about 15 years working in the reliability realm with a majority of that time in mining, mineral processing industries. Tim, you've got a bachelor's in mechanical engineering, graduate diploma in maintenance management, You've got a passion, from my understanding, for the entire life cycle of asset management. I'm really looking forward to learning more about reliability, the mentality that you've, you've crafted on how to deliver positive gains for any organization. I'm super excited, Tim. Welcome to the show. Um, let's dive right in. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing great, Ryan. Thanks for having me on. All right. Yeah, we'll just dive right into the very first question. What I love to do and kick things off with is I would just love to learn more about your background. And if you could share a little bit about your story and and how you got into this space, Tim, that would be great. (laughs) For a lot of us, it it, it all started when when we were kids. We used to love to pull things apart, put things back together. And that that kind of just initiated the fascination with, you know, mechanical systems, electrical systems and that sort of stuff. It kind of led me into uh, doing my mechanical engineering degree and then, you know, put me on a, a path where, you know, I got to actually be very hands-on with the, the equipment that I, I found myself um, in front of every day. And some of it was, you know, quite big equipment in the mining industry and, you know, you got to meet a lot of great people along the way. I got to work in, in different parts of the world. As you, as you might tell, I'm, I'm not from the US originally. I'm from Australia originally. And, and in the last eight years, I found myself over here in Salt Lake City. All right. Well, that's awesome. You know, you, you got your, your first start into it. It sounds like as a very young you know, child <laughs> tearing things apart. Um, I'm super curious. What was one of your first experiences that you remember vividly? getting into this industry and what made you love it? How about that? <laughs> the fact that, you know, as a kid, you had, you had small toys and as an adult now they're really just big toys and you can still be a kid again. You can get uh, really intimate with the equipment. I got started through engineering school. We did uh, a couple of internships and, you know, that just, just fueled the, the want to be very hands-on with my engineering degree rather than the, you know, stuck in an office and doing design work and not actually seeing the, the end product and the real thing. So that, that kind of just, you know, fueled the, the, the want to, to get into, I guess, maintenance and reliability. Yeah, I mean, I talk to a lot of folks and, and they say that idea of being able to roll up your sleeves, you know, turn a wrench and actually see a physical thing, either get fixed or create something and see something turn is like a huge, one of these like big instant gratifications that you can't really get sitting behind a desk. So I, I absolutely resonate with that too, Tim. I, I know that you've spent a, a large part of your time in, in career too, in this topic of defect elimination. Could you talk a little bit more about what that means to you, what that means in actual practice as well, especially in the mining industry? So the defect elimination to me, my definition of a defect, I, I take it from from Winston Lede, who is kind of probably considered the godfather of defect elimination. Um, and in part of his definition, um, he said, a defect is anything that erodes value. And basically in 
the the industry that I've been in, the companies that I've worked with, you, you see a lot of of value erosion and a lot of waste and a lot of opportunities where the company could be saving a lot of money or improving their processes to make a lot more money. So that that's kind of how you know I got started just by really seeing it um, as a reliability engineer. You kind of got given the process of defect elimination to own. I, I guess one thing I kind of learned along the way with defect elimination is people automatically associate a defect with a breakdown or equipment failure. Whereas, you know, if you go back to Winston Lede's definition, it, it's anything that erodes value. So we're, we're not just looking at breakdowns. We're looking at anything that could impact the productivity or profitability of the company. And that could be just through um, quality losses. And you know, even nowadays where we're looking at a lot of environmental issues, I, I guess you want to call it, um, where governing bodies want to put a lot of sanctions and a lot of restrictions, tighten up the guidelines as far as emission releases and, and put in place some hefty fines if there are, if, you know, if you do exceed those limits. So that kind of expanded my view on what defect elimination is and where it could be applied. So rather than it just be something that the, the maintenance world looks at, it should be something that the organization looks at and, and try and embrace us to ultimately you know, eliminate that value erosion and kind of gain that competitive edge over, you know, companies that they're, they're competing with. When I think of defect elimination, I, it, it comes off as like, oh, it's not that important. I'm curious if you got the same. Um, but what I, what I know and what I've seen in practice is that defect elimination can have one of the biggest, biggest impacts on a maintenance reliability team. I'm curious if you've seen the same, if you've heard the same, I'm also curious like what kind of impact you guys have had when it comes down to um, yeah, defect elimination and being more proactive about that. The proactive thing is funny because a lot of companies I found leave it until they need to do defect elimination before they actually put the program in place. Um, it'd be great to to start to build up your defect elimination program or processes before you have a mountain of defects to kind of wade through. But unfortunately, you know, we're not at that stage yet where they want to put that priority on doing something that they don't necessarily need to do right now. And look, the biggest bang for the buck that I've kind of seen with defect elimination is sometimes not even necessarily using data to identify the defects. It's just asking a mechanic or an operator or, or somebody that's on the shop floor, that's face-to-face with the effects every day, what the biggest problem is. And you know, eight, nine times out of 10, they'll bring up the issue that's the biggest problem for the company right now. So, but once you've made that engagement with the guys on the shop floor that the defect impacts every day, I, I think you can have the biggest impact, I, I guess, on them as far as defect elimination goes and, and fixing the problems that impact them and I guess, directly impact the company as well. So for me, as someone who's coming into the industry, realizing, hey, our department doesn't have a defect elimination program, um, and I want to start one, any advice for me as someone who's looking to start a defect elimination program at my plant? One thing that I heard from you just now was, you know, talk to the guys on the shop floor. It doesn't have to be rooted in, you know, tons and tons of research and data. It could be qualitative. Um, any, any other tips, advice for me? 
I think the entire company has to be committed to it. You know, may have mentioned it before. It's not just the responsibility of the reliability guy or the, the maintenance guy. It's everybody's got to be involved in it because I think you get the biggest impact when it's it's cross-functional within the organization. So a couple of things before you actually jump into the process of identifying the defects and, and fixing them, you got to make sure that you have the right people and the right roles assigned mm -hmm. to the defect elimination program. So, um, you know, making sure you've got sponsors and people to lead the, the defect elimination projects. A lot of the times they're going to need some guided training or, or information to, to get them up to speed as far as what they need to do. But then everybody that is in the organization that's hopefully going to be involved with DE will need some type of awareness that what defect elimination is and what it isn't, what we're trying to achieve out of it. Engagement and communication plans are very important for defect elimination because, you know, again, you just don't want to be siloed into this one little group doing it. If you want to make it organization-wide, you need to make sure that you've communicated and engaged with the necessary people to, to help solve defects. Because it's not, again, it's not just going to be the maintenance guys solving issues. You, you'll definitely need help from the operations guys, um, process guys, vendors and OEMs that make some of the equipment that might be failing, that might have the defect. There, there are a couple of, I, I think, things on the ground level that need to be identified and, and sorted out first before you kind of jump into the process. Once, once you've got a bit of guidance in that and you've got people excited, people involved, they're definitely you know, jump in, get people talking about what defects we want to solve first, how we want to do it, who wants to be involved and, and, and that sort of stuff. Communication is key outside of just creating the plan, getting buy-in from the entire organization top down. Along this topic around defect elimination, I'm curious, where do you most commonly see defects commonly introduced? Is it typically at the beginning? Is it the, the middle of the asset life cycle? Is it at the end as it's failing? Where, where have you typically seen defects get introduced? A lot can be introduced during the design phase. We don't take enough time during the design phase to identify defects or potential defects or things that may cause defects in the future. You know, there's a, a slide that goes around the, the conferences and I've seen a sort of few of the reliabilityweb.com conferences. And I think, you know, one of the gurus, Ramesh Galati, has shown this slide quite a few times. So I don't know who the exact reference is for it, but they say that for a defect that's identified during the design phase, it might cost, if it costs a dollar to remove it, you know, it might cost 10 times that during the, the asset build sub-assembly phase. If you leave it until the final build phase, it might cost 100 times that to, to remove that defect. But if you wait until the operation and, and the maintenance phase, it's going to cost 1,000 to 10,000 times the cost to, to remove it. So I think if we, we try and set up ways to identify and remove defects during the design phase, I think we'll go a long way. We won't go all the way because obviously over time, your equipment's going it, to, it'll wear, there'll be wear and tear. People will get complacent. We may not do the correct maintenance on it. There might be some neglect. You know, we might change what we expect out of that piece of equipment over time. You know, we might want to double the output of it, which is, is going to put a lot of stress on it. So over time, defects are, are going to naturally creep into our operation. So there probably isn't one particular phase that you need to concentrate DE on more. I think 
over the life cycle, you need to just have that awareness or understanding that you know, we should be thinking about what defects are being introduced. Do you have a good like uh, methodology for detecting defects in doing a, let's call it like a root cause analysis on, on why this happened and getting down to that like design level defect? In my opinion, you, you definitely need to you know, have some rigor around the analysis stage of it where you, you do that root cause analysis. I mean, you, you always run a fine line if, if you just want to throw out solutions to problems without fully understanding what, what the issue is in the first place. So I always recommend, at the minimum, asking the five whys to understand your root cause. I won't get into it too much, but it's, it's always... I've gotten really interested in the, the human factors side of things. And, you know, the Air Canada put out these 12, they call it the, the dirty dozen human factors where they say that I think 60% of maintenance issues are caused by at least one of these 12 human factors. So it's kind of interesting that it seems like everything ultimately comes back to the human yeah. aspect of things understanding what phase it, it came into um, might be, might be a different thing. So but look, definitely understanding the, the root causes is, is a must. Otherwise you, you kind of just throwing darts at the solution. Yeah, no, I, I definitely hear you on the human aspect, almost being the root cause of a lot of problems. I'm curious, is, has that been true, you know, working as a reliability engineer in the mining it, engineer in the mining industry when you think anecdotally would you say that's like roughly about true that most of defects come from human mistakes i mean sometimes when we talk about human factors and humans being the cause of the mistakes we automatically seem to jump at you know we're being uh you know our own worst enemy we're causing the defects on purpose but it's kind of we're, we're indirectly causing them through, you know, a lack of training, understanding, or we didn't know this, or we didn't do this properly, or it's, it's not our fault, but it kind of is our fault. <laughs> I mean, it almost seems like defect elimination has to go from the shop floor and a breakdown all the way up to the engineer at the design phase, right? It's not just maintenance reliability. It's also the, the engineer that designed the, the system. Are you seeing that happen very often? No, not really. Not as much as I'd like to. And even, you know, when I was practicing defect elimination and I was owning the process, you could get good buy-in from the maintenance guys. You'd get okay buy-in from the operations guys. But then when you tried to get other areas of the organization involved, it was kind of, they couldn't quite connect with it yet. So that, that's always been a challenge. Like I said, everybody needs to be involved in the in the process, not just the maintenance guys and the operations procurement, yeah. um, you know, even HR to make sure that we employ the right people. It's so fascinating, right? Because when we talk about defect elimination, doing the five whys, um, and, and, you, and all, all of us understanding that it almost comes back to some sort of human mistake, I can almost understand why people don't want to be part of the process, right? Because it always comes down to, it, it, maybe I should say, it may come down to pointing fingers at, hey, this person made this silly mistake here during the design phase, 
phase. This person here made a silly mistake during the installation or the, the, the procurement phase. Um, I, I think we all have the best, best intentions to prevent these from happening again in the future. Tim, I'm curious, like, how do you create a culture that, a culture within the team, within the company that you can have these adult conversations where people aren't focused on just pointing fingers, but really trying to move forward and get better collectively? I mean, a lot of people do, um, you know, when they think of root cause analysis and that, or they haven't been involved in a root cause analysis session, they, they do feel like sometimes it can be a blame game, especially when you get down to these human factors. I guess there's a, there's a two ways to kind of look at you as a, a facilitator or doing the root cause analysis. You, you should be trained in not making it a blame game and, and identifying the right verbiage to use rather than say you did this or you did that. Um, but then at the end of the day, if, if we did make a mistake as adults, we should probably own that mistake and say, you know what, made that mistake, didn't, you know, didn't willingly make that mistake, but through, you know, complacency or something I didn't factor into the equation kind of caused that to happen. So yeah, it's, it, it can be a tough one to, to work around. And I think it probably only start to build a coach culture or people start to only relax once you've had a few wins. So in the first few sessions of eliminating defects, they, they might be very standoffish, but once they see the results or, wow, we, we fixed these five defects in the plant in the last six months, you know, maybe defect elimination is okay. And maybe doing the root cause and identifying, you know, the root causes is, is the right thing to do. Uh, I'm curious, Tim, um, what, what's something you wish more people knew about uh, with regards to, to defect elimination, your time, your experiences, um, in this space, in this field? It's not one department's responsibility that everybody needs to own it and, and have their input into it. And then that's been probably the biggest roadblock I've seen is that, you know, like reliability. Um, the worst thing we probably ever did was having somebody called a reliability engineer because it automatically made them responsible for reliability apparently. So, yeah, I, I think, you know, trying to break down the silos and get, the organization involved and make it more of a collaborative program. How did you get into this space? Where did you start learning all of the, the experience that you've had with regards to maintenance, reliability, defect elimination, and any resources that you would guide our listeners towards if they want to learn more about this space and this field? I kind of fell into maintenance and reliability just you know, through the initial internships that I had first job I got was doing condition monitoring, collecting vibration, all those predictive maintenance um, technologies. And then I was kind of lucky enough, there was a mining boom in Australia. So they were looking for reliability engineers and I kind of put my hand up and just, you know, just fell into it. And, you know, fortunately some of the people around me were very good influences and had a lot of knowledge around maintenance, reliability and defect elimination. And nowadays, I kind of look to more the online resources. So I think, you know, LinkedIn has, has a lot of great information there, a lot of great discussions and people you can connect with and, and have conversations with. Then, you know, you've got places like reliabilityweb.com, um, the SMRP, you've got, uh, it's called CBM Connect with, with Mobius. 
um, and Noria. I mean, they've just got a wealth of, of information, like videos, articles. You'd spend a, more than an entire lifetime going through all of that stuff. Tons of information out there. It sounds like you've learned from all of the, the above and also just getting your hands you know, dirty and just practicing what, what, what you've learned. So that, that's such an amazing story, Tim. Um, I'm curious, you know, can you share with all of our listeners all the different ways they can connect with you, follow you along your journey? The, the main one right now is LinkedIn. Um, so everybody, feel free to, to shoot me a, a request. Um, but hopefully in the next you know, three to four months, um, working on a few things with regards to a website just to defect elimination resources um, and then working on a book as well with reliabilityweb.com. So hopefully that stuff will come into fruition um, sometime quarter two this year. So yeah, kind of watch the LinkedIn space for now and, and see what happens. Okay, well, I'm looking forward to, to reading your book as well and following you on your journey. Thank you so much, Tim, for joining us. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to today's Masterminds and Maintenance. My name is Ryan Chan. I'm the CEO and founder of Upkeep. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active. Um, you can also reach out to me directly at ryan at onupkeep.com. Until next time, thanks so much again, Tim. Thanks, Ryan.